Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Hello everyone, I'm Emma Fell, Head of Content here at HET and welcome to another talk supporting digital transformation from Healthcare Excellence Through Technology. Today's talk will be on frontier planning for an influx of patients and services with AI automation and optimization tools. Today our expert speakers will be considering the tools available to transform patient care, healthcare workflows and increasing operational efficiency, as well as how to support knowledge transfer across organizations, when and how to scale up and sharing success stories with peers, we will be also looking at how tools can help respond to and manage the new need for virtual intake and services, as well as how tools are being implemented to streamline processes and tackle pending bottlenecks in healthcare and increase service demand. We have an excellent lineup of panelists for you today, all with many years of experience in, in supporting and driving use of automation or AI to optimize, optimize outcomes across complex settings. Our moderator and first guest today is Nicola Hayward-Alexander a transformation consultant, strategic advisor for digital healthcare and chief information officer, who has worked in both the NHS and wide public sector. Nicola is a member of the HET steering committee. She is also on the healthcare Ex executive committee at the IET, executive strategic advisor for healthcare and education for the immersion group, CDIO at Seacole Digital and co-founder and managing director of tech uh, cv 19 Nicola has held a number of NHS CIO and transformation posts, including chair of both the Yorkshire and Humber PSN Partnership Board and the LIPA Co-Design Authority, Digital Director of South Yorkshire and Bassett Law Integrated Care System and CIO of Portsmouth Hospitals um, NHS Trust. Joining her today will be Darren Atkins, who in 2018 pioneered the adoption of intelligent automation at one of the UK's largest regional national health, health service organisations, the East Suffolk and North Essex Foundation Trust. Within months, Darren's digital workforce was delivering on its promise to free up more time for the staff to focus on patient care. He hasn't looked back since and demands within all corners of ESN EFT to automate high priority patient processes as well as back office processes has surged. Not content with limiting the benefits of automation to a single trust. Darren has spearheaded the initiative to create a NHS DX through which automations can be shared at no cost with other NHS bodies across the country. Darren recognises the opportunity for change is not limited by local boundaries, but extends to the whole of the UK's NHS. Joining Darren is Patrick Shepherd, who started the healthcare arm of Autonomy three years ago, now heading up healthcare within Blue Prism Cloud. His sector expertise has enabled him to successfully support numerous NHS customers onto their intelligent automation platform, including acute trusts, CCGs, CSUs, primary care trusts, and Department of Health bodies. We are also very pleased to welcome today Ivana Bartoletti, Technical Director at Deloitte, as well as a public speaker and now seasoned author and media commentator. In her day job, Ivana helps businesses with their privacy by design programs, especially in relation to artificial intelligence and blockchain technology. Ivana was awarded Women of the Year in 2019 at the Cybersecurity Awards in recognition of her growing reputation as an advocate of equality, privacy and ethics at the heart of tech and AI. In May 2018, Ivana launched the Women Leading in AI Network, an international lobby group of women advocating for responsible AI. Ivana is co-editor of the FinTech Circle AI book on, on how AI is reshaping financial services. Her first book, An Artificial Revolution on Power Politics and AI, uh, was published in May. 
Lastly, but by no means leastly, I'd like to introduce Harish uh, Schwabe, who is Senior Physicist in Magnetic Re Resonance um, and Topple Digital Fellow at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. He is also a part-time PhD candidate at the Centre of Neuroimaging Sciences at King's College London, where he is applying machine learning techniques to improve the treatment of glioblastoma. Harris has recently been appointed as AI Transformation Lead at the London AI Centre for Value-Based Healthcare, where he began working with clinicians, academics and SME partners to take projects from the idea stage to live prototype testing in hospital. A huge welcome and thank you to all of our speakers today for taking the time to both prep and join us for the discussion. We are going to be starting the webinar soon, so please note that our speakers will be answering your live questions at the end of uh, the discussion. So make sure to add any and all of your new questions to the Q&A function and not to the chat function, where there will be opportunity to vote up all the questions you like. We'll get to as many as possible and I'm now going to pass over to Nicola. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Emma. To quote uh, Dr. Eric Topple, the greatest opportunity offered by automation and AI is not just reducing errors or workloads or even curing diseases such as cancer. It is the opportunity to restore that precious and time-honoured connection and trust, the human touch between the patient and the clinician. Not only would we have more time to come together, enabling far deeper communication and compassion, but also we would be able to revamp how we select and train our doctors. More than ever, our clinicians and our carers have been pushed to their limits, intellectually, physically, and emotionally by COVID-19 over these last three months. This horrid pandemic has been the catalyst and it has created the urgency and that need for change. Where we are using automation, i.e. and optimization, we are decompressing the burden upon our clinicians, our carers, and our healthcare administrators. We're entering the fourth industrial revolution. And where these technologies, practices, and change have been applied, it has been translated into an enormous amount of time freed up. And the exponential impact is actually quite amazing. Darren, I'd love it if you could tell us some more about the work that has been done, especially over these last three months. Thank you, Nicola, and appreciate the introduction. In fact, at our trust, we're using the philosophy of making time matter. So the theory is if we can use the robot workforce to free up time for our corporate and clinical staff to spend more time with our patients or doing services that support our patients, it has to be a really good thing to do. And I certainly just think in the last few months with the pandemic that we've all been managing, it's really exposed the, um, you know, the restrictive resources we have at the front line in that uh, NHS staff are probably one of the most hard, in group, hard working group of people in the world. So whatever I can do to free up that time, you know, that's my goal. And if I reflect, yesterday actually was a two year anniversary of the ESNEF robots. And in month one, we released 300 hours. And uh, just yesterday we did about 11 and a half thousand hours. So when you equate that into how much extra time and capacity we have for the NHS, it's, it's great. So um, you know, myself, and my team, we've deployed so many processes uh, over that time period, everything from processing incoming GP referrals, um, saving time for medical secretaries, allowing them to answer the telephone to our concerned patients and um, spend more time supporting their clinicians. Done a lot of work around um, patient appointment cancellations. So we receive a text message and cancel that appointment. But more importantly, that's capacity that would have been wasting in the NHS. So we're repurposing that and allowing our, our, um, you know, a, a greater clinic utilisation and a lower DNA rate. But yeah. certainly with COVID, because we've used a very um, uh, modular and standardised approach to automation, 
myself and my team have delivered some really rapid turnaround of, of, of um, processes. To give you one example, um, our colleagues at Accenture and NHS Digital wanted to roll out um, email accounts for all social care across the country. Literally within 24 hours, the robot was built and tested and it started to allocate those email addresses. Um, speaking to frontline colleagues who are doing their ward rounds, that's had a huge advantage because now they can communicate with the care homes, share um, health plans and concerns and, and discuss directly about that patient care. So joining up those different aspects of the, um, you know, the STP or the ICS has, has been brilliant. But equally down to some really, um, I guess, basic things, really. Um, one of the, the major UK supermarkets, Iceland, issued some um, slot reservation vouchers, unique codes for social care to access um, you know, deliveries. Again, in the same sort of timeframes, our robot workers were delivering those, those care home vouchers uh, across all, all of the care homes in the country, making a massive difference to them. Um, but probably our biggest success is around the antibody testing. Um, you know, working with, with uh, such a, a dramatically and fast paced changing environment means we, we need to do things a little bit different. So our robots now at ESNEFT are processing staff antibody requests. So it's taking the request via a Microsoft Teams form and booking those order tests and sending the results back. And in fact, it's been very successful that I've literally just helped our colleagues at Norfolk and Norwich and roll out the same automation. So you know, my view is that automation is not going to replace our overall IT strategy around integration and bringing on you know, new applications to support our clinicians, but it bridges a gap and it, it helps us to you know, make time matter and deliver better patient care. And it's one of those technologies that can be done by the NHS for the NHS and to accelerate and scale across, across the, the whole of the UK is through that collaboration piece, which is probably the most, most powerful part. And I think that is also something that's really important is how can people um, get access to the work that you have been doing? You know, I know you're sharing blueprints, you're looking to share the knowledge and the learning. How can people best access that, Darren? Well, well Nicola, you know, I've, from the very beginning, I've been very open about that collaboration piece. So I spent a lot of my time talking to NHS Trust up and down the country and helping them define their strategy, helping them run workshops and put together a program of opportunity. People just need to contact me. Um, everything is available to, available to use, and I'm happy to share it. And the easiest way to get hold of you, I assume, is through LinkedIn. But there are other ways that we can that HEP can share um, after Absolutely. this. My email, LinkedIn, Twitter. You'll find me everywhere. <laughs> okay, that's wonderful. So as we've sort of been saying, you know, the focus is on making you know humans more humane, while we allow the machines to get on um, and better and enhance that human effect. And again, you know, I refer back, back, back to Topol on this um, uh, bedside reading for me. Um, AI can see that hu what humans can't. Deep learning trains machines to see things far better than what a human will ever be able to see. And we're starting to realize all these things that we would never have guessed before. Um, and a lot of the best work in this space are done by startups who are developing things from radiology algorithms to dermatology to voice recognition. And often behind that are clinicians. And all of this is actually changing the role of the clinician today. And so Harris, I'd like to ask you as a Topol fellow, how are we changing the role of the clinician and how are we educating our clinicians for tomorrow? So thanks for that, Nicola. So the role of the clinician is, um, changing in lots of different ways and at lots of different points. Um, you mentioned about, you know, this idea of co-development with our sort of startup and commercial partners. And that's really, really important with uh, uh, a technology like AI, which is sort of still at its um, genesis, really. 
um, it hasn't really established itself like, for example, RPA has. And a lot of the early <clears throat> products that were on the market, a lot of the early solutions lack some of that clinical insight. And, um, and that's why some of the uptake up till today hasn't been as, uh, or what we would have hoped for. But tides are changing. Um, there's a lot of um, collaborations that are being set up. For example, at uh, King's Health Partners, we have um, our Innovate UK funded London Centre for AI um, for value-based healthcare. And that essentially co-locates um, SMEs, clinicians and academics to allow us to essentially shorten the feedback loop um, so that we can iteratively develop this, um, uh, these products. What that then allows is for our clinicians to be um, very quickly upskilled in things like data science and AI and, and the art of extracting more data, uh, more information from the routine clinical data that we have already. But that's sort of at the, the development side. Um, and then there is the other aspect is once you start to introduce this into clinical care, and here there is still um, a bit of a gap uh, and how it's solved at different institutions and even in different countries looks very different and will look very different, I think. Um, across our sort of local sort of NHS ecosystem, uh, we have um, a lot of projects that are very clinician-led. Um, and so you have traditional sort of uh, medical doctors um, who have taken a leading role in AI and are leading AI projects. And then you have colleagues like myself who are clinical scientists who, who come from a scientific background um, who are also sort of leading the charge in these AI projects. And um, from both of those ends of the spectrum, we are sort of converging towards a sort of clinical data science specialty. Um, and this doesn't exist at the moment. Um, and so this is a question for people like Health Education England, the Academy for Healthcare Sciences, to see what is the appropriate approach um, to make this sustainable, right? Um, so that to make sure that we can exploit these technologies to, to, the, to their fullest um, and that that um, benefit is sustainable for the long term so that it's not just a short-term project, not something that's research focused, but that really is embedded into routine care. And so that's one of the challenges that we're still looking to solve. And you gave me, uh, when we were talking yesterday in preparation for this call, this call um, Harris, you told me about um, how you explain how the role, um, how the profession, the medical profession has changed over the centuries. And I thought that was really, really interesting. It's what you share with, um, you know, first year doctors when you're, when you're speaking to them. Yes. Um, yes. You tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you personally um, see this changing the role of the doctor and how do we influence society generally to accept that changing role? Yeah, sure. So I always, yeah, I always say, you know, the word doctor is from, I think, a Germanic word, which just means learned person to go to for help. And uh, I'm ago, that doctor would have been something like uh, a witch doctor or a shaman or something like that. Mm. And then that developed into someone who was familiar with botanical sciences and herbs and their properties. Um, and so that became her herbal medicine. And then um, as sort of the enlightenment happened and the industrial Rev revolution, 
doctors became biochemical scientists and that's what we asked them to be. We still call mm. them doctors. And so mm. this is uh, related to the question where we talk about does AI replace doctors? But we've replaced them many times throughout history. <laughs> and so as now medicine uh, goes from a biochemical science to an information science or a, a science that's led primarily by information and computer science, that's what we will need our doctors to become, our mm. learned people, um, to, to be able to not only integrate that, uh, those foundational sciences, um, but to add this layer of, of information science. But the, the, the appearance will still be the same. It will still be a doctor. Um, mm. But behind the scenes, they will be information scientists. It's really interesting. Thank you. And um, Ivana, we've, we've been talking about, obviously, that, you know, the, the, the place this has in society today. Um, you know, if I was thinking about this, if, if your social feed um, and your social filter sort of defines who you are and tells other people who you interact with and, 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 and what you buy and where you buy it from, um, and, you know, if you've, if you've gone on and used any of the various apps from... Um, um, you know, playing a game of, of solitaire through to looking what you might look like when you're, when you're 80 years old or you've, da you've done a, a job application online or you've used the phone to optimise your journey to get somewhere as quickly and as effectively as you possibly can. Um, that's AI and it's playing a part in everything we do, our work, our play, you know, our, our, our interactions and how we live. Um, and we are living in an era of automation. We've been actually living in an era of automation for, for, for over, well over a hundred years in terms of um, automation and uh, mechanical automation. Um, but today we're living in that, that fourth um, industrial revolution where we've programmed and we're t now teaching machines to learn and to act without necessarily having to have our direct intervention and to use the data that we as citizens are already providing. So the situation is very real. And if you look across health and care, um, our personal data is in fact dispersed over many, many different places and collected in many, many different ways, both by human beings that then record that into technology or directly by technology itself. Um, but right now, no one has all that data. No one necessarily has a handle on all their data. Um, and I think the, one of the biggest things we can do is to give that data ownership to people. This is, this is what people are saying. We have to um, assess the security of that data and privacy, but that involves having perhaps a different ownership model than we have today. So how are we achieving public engagement? And how are we getting that social license to operate and use AI in health and care? Well, a fabulous question, Nicola. Um... And uh, it's really, really good. And I, I want to make a few points on this. The first one is that attitudes are changing. And you mm. mentioned that. And I think nothing as the pandemic has shown to people that we need to rethink personal data mm. as an incredible collective asset. Mm. Um, because we've seen in this pandemic how interconnected and interdependent we all are. Yes. And I think moving from a sort of, there is nothing more that has more public value than a piece of personal information, as they say. Mm. And I think those operating in health know this very well. So the attitude is changing. 
The um, problem that we're facing from a privacy perspective at the moment are in relation to the fact that a lot of the times the line between personal data and sensitive data has been blurred on a daily basis. And that is because at the moment you can really infer data which is very sensitive and medical from data which is not sensitive and medical at all in the first place. And this is where ethical consideration come in and this is where startups in particular um, need to play a lot of attention. And this is where when organizations in health deploy tools off the shelves, that's where they need to be really careful in assessing what they are deploying. Because a lot of the times what we're seeing is in the pace, in an attempt to automate and digitize a fast speed. I, I see organizations that sometimes do not pay the enough attention to what actually, where's the data being trained? Where does it come from? What are the privacy, security and ethical considerations that need to be understood? And that is in a situation where the regulatory landscape is changing, where at the moment in health, we have... Uh, procurement guidelines in relation to AI. We, of course, have the National Health, that National Data Guardian for Health and Social Care, but we still don't have that sort of framework that we need for this. Mm -hmm. The other issue that you mentioned, which is crucial, is around data and data ownership. Now, data ownership is a term in, terminology that I absolutely that I don't like. <laughs> and I don't like it because for two reasons. First of all, because personal data is not something that we have and we can sell out mm. like a car or my mobile phone, but it's us. Yeah. Especially mm. for us in digital, in health, you know, my mm. personal data, my scan, my scan of my body is me. It's not mm. something I can sell off. It's me. It mm. constitutes me. Mm. That's why it needs to be treated with great care. But what one thing that I'm working on is, what are the structures that we need to give to data which enable harnessing of this personal data in a way which is compliant with ethical standards, privacy? And this is where we've got to come up with something new. We've got to come up with data trusts. We have to come up with data cooperatives. We need new intermediaries between us as citizens, as individuals and patients mm. and organizations and i'm you know i'm privileged to be working on these things with big with organizations so how do we create this data trust how do we create these data cooperatives how do we create a new forms of data management which enables people like darren people like her to, to really say okay we're using all this you know but we are not placing all the responsibility on the individuals every single moment of their life because mm. patients they want to be reassured that the data is dealing is being dealt with in a certain way, but we cannot go through the process of every single moment through our daily life to having to interrogate people whether they're happy or not with what we're doing because it's impossible. It's deception. It's not control. <laughs> so we that's, this is why you know I think we've got to think about okay how do we enable that control through new intermediaries the handles and conserve and manage people's data and the access of other organizations into people's data based on an agreement that an individual has with that trust which is run by a third-party organization i think this is this is what i would like to really focus on with organizations moving forward and that's really really interesting the last thing really briefly that i wanted to say is in relation to one thing which is relation to to um the um, 
yeah, the, the big challenge that we've seen at the moment in health and it's in relation to the, some barriers that the organizations are facing. And, uh, and these are in particular in relation to um, bias in data. And I wish we, and I hope we can talk about it later on, but I think there's, yeah. mu- there's, uh, there's an, one of the other things that I think some people I work with, some organizations I work with, they are feeling a little bit concerned about. I think that's a good point. Um, you know, I mean, I was thinking um, you, myself, colleagues such as Tabitha Goldstorb and Indra yeah. Joshi, you know, this, this is not just a, as my, my son will pro- my sons will probably die now on the spot. It's not just a tech bro world, is it? Um, they don't like me using this sort of young speech really, but um, although, you know, sadly, I mean, I've been an engineer now for over 30 years, but we still only occupy, um, even in even in technology where we've got the largest proportion, we still only occupy about 13% of the profession. So, um, but we are representing slightly more than 50% of the, of, of, of the population. And how do we ensure that when it comes to design, when it comes to our application of policy, when it comes to our application of technology, how do we ensure that we are representing the whole diversity of society? Um, and and, and Avani, you may have something you want to say now, but I think it would be a useful one to put to to everybody and to and to the wider audience um, about about that issue of, of, of representation. Well, what again? You know how true is this? You know, just this is. So, and that, you know, in a moment where because of the pandemic, um, yes, we people say, oh, it's great to be working from home. But again, how biased is that aside, this situation uh, to say <laughs> this? Because in reality, what is happening is that the, the, the ability of women to, for example, contribute to AI deployment in academia at the moment is plummeting because women are dealing with childcare most of the time. Mm. So, you know, as you say, bias comes in different forms, including how we present things, you know, and say, um, what I wanted to say briefly on these issue is that the, there isn't an area where bias has has become more relevant than in health. If you think about how little we've known about endometriosis since very late, and that is because we never collected information about it, or how much, for example, heart diseases, how little we've known about how they impact women, because the only information that we've collected was information about men. Mm. And that is because there is nothing as as data neutrality. Data is not neutral at all. Okay. It's the okay. it's the product of years and years of, of hierarchy and social. You know, so that's so obviously having women working and coding and, and, and that is crucial. But it's also important, I think, to understand that technological fixes will not fix the problems of structure uh disparities and structural inequalities that's you know it, it, that where the, the change needs to happen i mean algorithmic justice is very different from justice in general this yeah. is what especially us in health passionate about health that what we want to achieve you know it says um so um in health in particular all the organizations i work with that always recommend to have clear understanding of where bias may arise which is not just because of historic data there's a massive massive mistake people say the data is biased because of what we've put into the system no data can come in so many different times evaluation aggregation every time 
Um, and also data can commit, buyers can commit by simply the way that you use that particular product and artifact. Mm -hmm. So it's that culture that needs to be developed, you know, where may buyers come in? How can we mitigate this? How can we mitigate this through technological fixes, but also through a change of culture more in general? Um, a perfect algorithm with a perfect data sample, yes, it's probably fixed technically, but it doesn't mean that it's not biased and it's neutral. And this is important. This is where deploying AI is very much of, of an organizational effort with people from every background trying to really understand what the impact is going to be. And that to some extent, that, that is so true and bias is, is, is incredible and I think we don't even realize, often it's the smaller biases we don't, we don't realize, you know. Um, I work as, as, as a senior person in, in IT and my, my other half is a carer and people kind of would expect it's the other way around and in terms of how COVID has impacted us, they expect it's the other way around. Um, it, it's, it's there all the time and, it's, and I think that's why it comes back to that social license and that social context and society as a whole. Um, but to take us back to that, that context of a, of a patient, um, Patrick, I'd like to come to you now. Um, Again, I'm going to quote from, from Eric Topol. Okay, I'm going to contextualize this for my patient. I'm going to have a meaningful relationship and understand the presence of the person so that I can give my human wisdom and my empathy. We are going to give this efficiency that we are creating through optimization, AI and automation back to our patients. We're going to give people more charge and more power while we decompress that burden on everyone else. I personally think this is really important. Um, my son's a junior doctor and he, he trained here in the UK and he's now working out in Australia. And they do have a different attitude to work, to workload, and their system does work differently to ours. And he tells me that he now has more time with his patients. And he says as a junior doctor, that has had a huge impact for him. But he still thinks that a lot of this is about adoption attitude. Um, and also um, variation across the system globally is different as well as that adoption and that attitude. So while automation, as we've been saying, has become more acceptable, I think we've also saying that AI is still an area of dispute. And that's not just regarding the privacy data issue that we've just been discussing. It seems to be something that people either love or hate. It has a bit of a marmite and that, that takes us back to our um, UK, Australia um, sort of comparison here. Um, so what's, what sort of impact is that having for you as, as a distributor, as somebody who is providing this technology into this sector? What are the experiences that you are having in reality? That's a really good, really good question, Nicholas. I think, um, I think three years ago, when I when I started the healthcare business, you know, walking into the first trust in London, trying to talk about software robotics deployed by the public cloud with an element of of AI and machine learning, uh, mm. I was saying just before this that um, I didn't quite get asked to leave the building, but it, it wasn't far from that. And I think if you fast forward three years now, the adoption of this technology is widely recognised. You know, clearly the work that Darren Atkins has done. Has kind of um, have kind of spearheaded that, but no, we're certainly in a in an age now where we would probably be engaging with you know two, three, four NHS trusts on a monthly basis, discussing a range of automations from back office automations right through to outpatients. But I think the reason that um, I think AI and, and certainly RPA uh, has had some challenges culturally, specifically, is is largely that um, I think the view is that it involves someone in a managerial position spotting a, I guess, a shortcoming or a limitation of their employees 
or, or simply a weakness relative to, uh, I guess, machine performance. So Nicola, you can't work 24 hours a day, but a machine can. Uh, you might make mistakes moving data from one system to another, a machine won't. And I think the perception is what that means is that there's going to be an element of punishment. And that usually takes the form of, of workforce reduction or pay reduction in real terms. And actually what we've seen is, um, I think Darren will attest to this, is, is actually augmentation by contrast. So spotting the human weakness or limitation and making up for it. So yes, you can't work 24 hours a day, nor should you. But actually, where human beings add real value, certainly in the NHS, is, is in terms of empathy and compassion and verbal conversations and wanting to spend more time with patients. Uh, and that time matters element that Darren talks about is really important. You know, the, the metric that a million pounds worth of overtime per week uh, is, 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 um, is used by NHS staff for free. That's a million pounds a week that people are spending of their time. We know that the NHS has the highest level of sick leave. I think it's 18 days per annum. We know there's an attrition rate of 10 to 12%. We know staff are really you know, under the cosh. And when you, can, when you consider that a digital worker uh, can work 730 hours a month and we work around 150, you know, we should absolutely be embracing this technology to start to free up workforce to do those things. You mentioned about the fourth industrial revolution, you know, moving from horse-drawn carriage to you know, combustible, combustible engine or right through to the Fordist production line, there's always been a step change in productivity and change. And this is, this is just that now. And there's a really good book um, called Only Humans Need Apply by Professor Tom Davenport. And what he talks about is this merging of, um, I guess, IT and business. So I think he, he talks about um, IT being blue people and business people being red people. And what we need in the future is purple people as we start to accept the fact that AI and, and RPA is going to enter our, in, into, our, into our lives. So how does the handoff of my action therefore interact with a, with a software robot? Or how will the AI interpret what I'm trying to do? And I think that's quite, that's quite, um, quite an interesting notion. But I still think there's a long way to go. I think I mentioned uh, on the, the call yesterday we had that um, when they, they did a study of I think 1900 or so people, and that, that, that was a study of um, research scientists, business leaders, journalists, and said, you know, by 2025, will AI robotics will it have displaced more jobs than it would have created? Uh, and 52% of people said it would create more. So I think actually there's still a, I think it's still up for debate in terms of what, 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 what the market's going to, going to look at. But certainly in the NHS, what we have seen, uh, the work that Darren does, the 25 plus trust that we engage with, it's absolutely freed up people's time to spend more time with patients, get home on time, uh, leave earlier, see their kids uh, and make people happier. So I think that is the role right now, you know, of, of what we would call functional AI. It's certainly not the pointy end of, stick, of the stick that Harris was talking about. But actually, you know, in terms of what we do right now in, in terms of um, being used by the masses and, and certainly being supplementary to the benefits that they produce, you know, we certainly see that there's a massive benefit right now in the here and now of, of using RPA and AI in the market. Nicola, if I can just follow on the... On the, on the... If I may just follow on from Patrick's point, I think what's amazing here is certainly in terms of the intelligent automation technology, it's tried and tested and it's given us some great results. I appreciate from an AI perspective, it's, it's a much earlier in terms of its adoption and, and the way that we embrace that. But what astounds me, there's still areas of the country who are manually typing in COVID antibody tests <laughs> on pieces of paper, employing eight people to work 24 hours a day with thousands and thousands of backlog. It's done. It's available to use. How much into the care record is it either absolutely but how much more effort do i need to put in to try and convince central nhs this is the right thing for us to do 
And in fact, I push it so hard. You know, I got some grief the other night on LinkedIn calling me a salesman. You know, I'm just doing what is right for the NHS. You know, cost-effective use of, of public funds, doing the right thing, collaborating and sharing. I just mm. wish more people would get it and understand it. Thank you. So, so Nick, I was just going to add, I think actually in COVID as well, especially with, you know, recovery and reset plans, I think most, most trusts would say that we're past the peak, but we're still finding ourselves with, you know, thousands of referrals to get back to, to get booked in. There's a huge backlog of work that needs, that needs doing. Uh, and I think that's probably where the, the biggest challenge is at the moment in those recovery and reset plans and certainly where we're, we're supporting NHS trusts to try and uh, get through that backlog as quickly as possible. And I think what we'll see, Patrick, be really interesting is in terms of the trust recovery plans and how well they recover, mm. I think we'll see those organisations with, with intelligent automation will manage that so much better than those without. Yeah, I'd probably agree yep. with that. So I'm going to hand over to our audience. Um, we have a Q&A capability. We'd be very happy if people want to add those questions into that Q&A capability. I have got one already here for the, the panel. Um, Ivana, you may want to um, speak to this first, but I think it would be good also perhaps um, if, if, if Harris can also um, give input from, from a, a clinical perspective as well. So how do you create a neutral and unbiased data and also ensure that it is meaningful and useful? They have gone on to say that we have seen this with COVID and the BAM community where the data has been divorced from its context and therefore makes it frustratingly hard to act on. Now, uh, Ivana, you did, you, did, you did allude to this earlier. I think what this um, colleague is asking is, 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 how are we going to address that? Having, having observed that, and realize that that is something, and that obviously it is an example of a probably a wider problem. How, we, how are we going to address that? Yeah, so, I mean, Harris will have sort of more, um, so if I let insights in this as well, it would be great to, to have sort of a, com a com some conversation on this. So, first of all, I think it's about understanding uh, the, um, where the bias within all this can come from. And so, yes, we said historic data, uh, which is a big part of it. The other one is representational bias. Where is the, and that is for me is really the what this question is referring to, which is a sample, mm -hmm. um, and and how do how, how we create the perfect sample, um, and that means uh, and that is is a, a question for the scientists, but it's a question that is really really important. So how do we create the data sample, and even if we have the perfect data sample, we're still running into the issue that the output may be biased in itself um so um and you know okay clearly so they said but the other issue is about measurements labels and and uh, proxies um so that's one other element that can bring up bias into the, the the systems and then you've got the aggregation bias which i often see happening in uh, in health and uh, which is when distinct populations are combined in a way which then leads to bias and then you have evaluation bias and then you have deployment bias so this all, all the different stages so it's not just about creating the neutral data mm -hmm. set it's about creating some bias that may work but also evaluating the potential bias arising from different stages of the product i've seen in healthcare for example especially radiology things that i have to really intervene where where for example a particular product developed in a particular territory was latching on data that had nothing to do with then the context where that particular algorithm was then ultimately going to be deployed 
Mm. And that to me was problematic because then in that case you are using data which is biased, but also you're using the product which outcome is biased, but also it can be harmful. That's where mm. the harm might come from. And mm. this is where it's really important to make sure that when when organizations are purchasing products off the shelf, they interrogate the systems, audit them, interrogate these systems. Um, so auditing algorithms in relation to, to, to data bias is, is a key, is a key uh, thing that we, the organization have to do before they deploy them. Harris, would you agree? Yeah, no, 100%. And that's um, a, a lot of the work that we are doing in hospitals and, and I, and I think it does have to be us and it has to be us leading this and demanding this. Um, um, and this is where the role of sort of that clinical data science really comes to the forefront. Someone who understands uh, the clinical domain, the problem and the patient population uh, that the AI pathway sort of attempts to transform or affect. And then also understanding, you know, AI performance characteristics from a technical perspective. Um, and so when we're designing um, evaluations, when we're deciding to purchase some technology, uh, for example, it's very important to understand, you know, what are the important characteristics that we have to represent in our validation data set? So, for example, if the intention is to use an algorithm on our entire patient, do we have adequate representation from pediatrics, right? Um, that's just like a very obvious one. Um, and there's also um, a trade-off between having a natural sample versus an enriched sample. So, yeah. for example, certain uh, demographics or subsets uh, of our population are very rare. For example, certain ethnicities or age ranges or whatever it might be. Um, and so the idea is, do you uh, maintain that relative um, prevalence in the mm -hmm. data set that you use to test it? Or do you enhance it to make it the same as all the others? So for example, if for a particular disease, there's not many women who suffer from it, is it appropriate to have that same level uh, 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 or same number of women in your test set? Or, or will that hide some of the deficiency in performance? So that's what you see. So what we call subtask performance. So for example, an algorithm might say that it's 99% accurate, mm. uh, overall which might be true but on a subset of a particular type of patient it is always inaccurate yeah. Um, yeah. and so that's very important and going back to the development phase so when you're trying to build these algorithm and um the the questioner talks about a neutral data set mm -hmm. so i'm assuming he's talking about stripping away things that might introduce bias and i think you have to take the opposite approach mm -hmm. is you have mm -hmm. to be explicit sure. about all yeah. of the, the the richness of the attributes of, of our patients right yeah. um, to make sure that they are count, accounted for um rather than hidden away and i think that's really helpful i think that actually takes us on to another question here which is how can we therefore be confident that the application of ai is actually reflecting the true patient need if we're saying what we are doing is freeing up clinicians time um in order you know as a reflection of 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 the context of limited access to healthcare, but we're wanting to improve access to healthcare. Now, I know when we're talking about limiting, freeing up the patient's time, we're talking about being able to enhance that quality of relationship between the clinician and the patient or the service user in order for 
clinician to get the more nuanced aspects of the pathology and the history um, associated with that particular patient and their condition or conditions. But I think what they're saying is how, how can our application of AI ensure that it is developing that deeper understanding um, and level of personalization um, of that of their diagnostics their diagnosis and their treatment it's a very good question and in fact i i would say it's the chief question when it comes to deploying it for routine clinical care and it's something at least in the early days i think we are a bit wiser now uh, wasn't as wasn't stressed enough and it's understanding you know what is the the final objective that i'm trying to improve right uh, and is that meaningful to the patient? Um, so for example, you might have an AI product which claims to be able to detect, I don't know, um, tumors within a patient or something like that. Um, but if that, in, in the context of the, the treatment pathway, if that doesn't lead to, for example, better outcomes for a patient, uh, better survival rates, um, if it doesn't improve uh, the patient uh, and clinician relationship, then, it is just a toy, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, it's impressive technically, but mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's not medical AI. No. It's just AI. And that's really a question about us developing our maturity and our use of these capabilities. And I think to bring us back to um, the immediate situation, um, there are a couple of questions here, and I think they um, are worth looking at together. And I think they're aimed primarily at Darren and, and Patrick. But people are saying, so what are the immediate quick wins? Considering the situation we are in, um, the, the situation we were in before COVID hit and the, and the situation we are in now post COVID with those, those contexts combined, you know, what are the quick wins across health and social care? Um, and how can we ensure that they, you know, um, that they are um, NHS, um, care provider, GDRP friendly for immediate use. So can you give us some examples of things that people could be adopting immediately without too much inhibition? Brilliant. Thank you, Darren. Sorry, I don't know whether Patrick go first or myself. Um, the outfit, when I, when I talk to trust around automation, I always say the best place to start is just by automating the as is. If you mm. automate the as is, you can release benefit very quickly. You know that the process has already been defined, so you know it's going to work. Um, and equally, it poses lower risk. So you don't need loads of layers of change management uh, and transformation resource to do that. Um, and there's enough opportunities in the NHS to keep you going for the first 12 months at least around automating the as-is. But I've had a lot of discussions with um, other colleagues over the last few weeks about what does a recovery plan for the NHS look like? And I think I've come to the opinion that actually it's doing what we normally do, the business as usual type work, in a much shorter time frame at a higher volume. You know, if you mm. think about how much work we need to recover from, it, it's huge. And, and I don't know how trusts are going to do without that automation platform. But what I've tried to do with the, you know, the number of trusts that are on the common platform now across, across the UK is put together a, a, a platform of standardized automation. So that means that if you take my work and deploy it, you understand the naming conventions, the structure. And again, I keep, keep saying about the example just the last couple of days for our colleagues at Norfolk and Norwich. You know, we had that up and running really quickly because it, it was written in, a, in, in an intelligent way, so to speak. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's the way forward. Pat, did you have any comments on that? No, I think, um, I think quick wins is a, is, a, is a difficult one because I think each trust, so I think since COVID, I think I've spoken to about 50, 60 trusts and each 
each trust has similar challenges in terms of those recovering reset, you know, rebooking appointments, theatre rescheduling, they're, they're, common, they're common challenges. But I think when we talk about quick wins, you know, some departments, um, there's a trust in the North uh, West where their finance team has been decimated by COVID and actually they have a, a duty of care to process invoices in a certain time frame that they're not being able to do. So for those guys are quick winners, how do we automate the accounts payable function? But in most trusts, that probably isn't a quick win. So I think it depends on, on what they're looking to achieve and what they're looking to do. But also if we talk about quick wins, you know, if we spin up a, uh, an environment, if we spin up a, uh, I guess a project and we're talking, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 weeks, <laughs> to do that are the challenges that we're facing now going to be the challenges that, that they're facing when the process is, is is live so i think actually having that that here and now view but also got a, an eye on the what's going to be happening over the next two to three months to benefit the tactical here and now but also the long-term strategic goals but you know as darren said things like you know referrals those types of processes new starters onboarding getting people into the trust as soon as possible those types of things have been have been quite common across the across the sector yeah, I think it's very another interesting question here is sort of a very specific one about how um, can AI assist, for example, in getting the correct supply um, of PPE. Um, I'm that's from Steve Goddard. I'd suggest have a look at what um, Advise Inc are doing um, with their aid um, to partners in America, where they have been using AI to understand what the demand and supply is around um, across stocks both in the um, health providers, but also the, the wider healthcare system and GPs. Um, they, they repurposed their business during this time to be able to do that. And they've been using AI techniques there. Um, I think the other, another question that's come up here um, is, in order, whenever you implement new technologies, you require proper change management. So in the opinion of the panel, what are the best strategies to reduce the barriers to adoption and maximise success? And Darren and I, you and I were talking about this yesterday, um, about the importance of understanding what the problem is rather than the solution. Absolutely. And again, when I realised straight away when I started in this, this sort of technologies, it's very threatening. You know, it's about replacing yeah. people's jobs and, and the media doesn't, doesn't help this, this whole uh, impression. And things have changed. And for me, at the very outset, it's, it's not about thinking about the technology. It's thinking about that cultural change. So I said earlier about this whole idea of making time matter. You know, using the unit of time is something that everybody understands. You don't get any more of it. Uh, it's very precious and you need to use it wisely. And mm. from that point on, the engagement across the whole of ESNEF has been amazing. You know, from senior execs um, through to war clerks and anybody, you know, they, they know how to engage with the team. And I think part of our success is about being very open and honest. You know, our robots have an identity. Some of our staff have even built models out of cardboard toilet rolls, you know. So they have an identity. Um, people know that we're using them. They can see the work that they've been doing. And, and I think that's been a success. I have seen other organizations, not just in health, but in the private sector as well, all around the world, who very much go out to drive, um, you know, save money and drive down costs. And they're very open and visible about that. And funnily mm -hmm. enough, they're the ones who don't seem to make as much progress. You need inclusion from the people at the coalface actually doing the work. Uh, it's really important if you're going to be successful with this. And Harris, um, ha what do you think the clinician's role is then in, in, in facilitating that inclusion? The clinician generally has the most um, trust, trusted relationship with the population. Um, so wh where do you where's their role in this change journey? I mean, so from, from our perspective, we've always talked about 
everything needing to be clinician led, right? And it almost become a sort of a mantra. But there does need to be a bit of a, a balancing force. Um, and it's related to the quick wins that Patrick and Darren have talked about in that at, at this stage, particularly for AI, where unfortunately it's had not the best of press at times related to data sharing agreements and, uh, and things like that. Um, what's really important is that you solve things that are meaningful, um, but that are solvable. Um, and often the things that interest clinicians um, are sometimes not the easiest problems, right? Um, they want to be able to detect cancers and predict survival. And they're all, uh, you know, things we should be working on. But sometimes, you know, improving radiology appointment scheduling is the, the thing that we need to work on. Uh, and it's difficult sometimes to get our clin clinical colleagues to get excited about stuff like that. But we still need them, uh, uh, need their input uh, to lead projects uh, that are more sort of operational in nature. Um, so definitely they have a very important role to play, but it's, it's more of a multidisciplinary team rather than uh, them sort of leading the charge. Yeah. Can I add something to this? Of course, please, Ivana. Yeah, I mean, I was really impressed. I think we might have lost... That... Sorry, Ivana, I think we might have lost you. Can you hear me? Oh, can you hear me now? Yes, we can, thank oh, you. Oh, great, I don't know what happened. So um, I think it's good to see an alignment on the idea and I was really really beautifully i mean the thing is look at a problem that you're trying to solve and this is the first thing and i i work with a lot of organizations across sectors and they it's really get them to understand you know yes what is the problem what is the challenge um and it's not just because products are available or because you you feel that you have to automate yes but it's not you can't rush you we can't rush into technical solutionism which is i think a problem serious problem that we have in the time we live in uh, so it's understanding that and then if I look at barriers for example one of the things I'm seeing with organizations in health I work with is the barriers are around privacy the barriers are around understanding what is the threat landscape what is the what is cyber security what is going to happen and what does really you know what does explainability really mean so explainability for a patient you know they, we need to know different things but the problem is um how do we bring together domain experts across hospitals coming from different expertise in order to contribute to this journey mm. and i see this when i you know some of the products that we have for example uh, that we use that I, I don't know they could be around the deployment of uh, of so optimal optimization A&E or triaging, some of the sort of the, the, deploy the products that I help embed. Yes, it's not just taking a product and embedding it, but it's the domain experts coming in together, coming from different areas of the organization and contributing to this. And if there is, and even sometimes, even having the courage to open it up, as Darren was saying, to the patients and saying, we are deploying this, with, or, you know, and, and having a sort of, uh, even a sort of oversight board that comes from engagement, with patients mm. is absolutely mm. important because I think mm. people have seen it all. I mean, we've seen what happened. The, I mean, we've seen the best of technology over the last few years, but we've also seen some really horrible stuff happening. So of course, patients and people in general have got a right to be a little bit wary. Yes. And obviously it's, 
happens less so in health because people want to be treated and want to be cured so they have a different approach to sharing in health than in digital advertising obviously but still it's really really important to to put patients at the heart I think I think we can see both from the questions that have been asked and um, the conversations that we've had and how um, my colleagues have presented today that this is a really really passionate subject you know, we've talked about the current need, we've talked about the current context, we've talked about quick wins, we've talked about the role of the clinician. And we've talked about public concerns and social license and bias, potential bias in the data. Um, and we've talked about that we have to focus on the problem. And sometimes that problem might be quite basic and not particularly exciting, but it is what we need to be able to do. I would suggest that there is an awful lot more um, that we need to resolve collectively and we're not going to solve that in, in this one hour today So I'm hoping that that HEC will be able to help us to come together again um, and to explore more of the um, The steps that we need to take to move this forward um, And on that note, I'll hand over to Emma. Thank you very much to everybody for being here and taking part Emma you have your um, Mute on. <laughs> oh, fun. Sorry about that. <laughs> Most popular phrase of the last three <laughs> Um Yeah, so I just wanted to hop back on and say thank you to everyone, um, all of our speakers today, especially for um, prepping and delivering such an excellent talk and, and it's engaging and informative talk. Um, this and all of our upcoming talks uh, will continue to be available on demand and on the HEP podcast, available on both Spotify, Spotify and all your favourite podcast channels. Um, we at HET are preparing a number of interactive virtual roundtables and workshops to enable you to share best practice and experiences of bedding down um, with all of these new ways of working. Um, there will be a follow-up email to all attendees today, enabling you to register your interest um, in an AI and automation workshop um, to take place next month. So be sure to register your interest. Should you like to attend or nominate a member of your team to attend, um, be sure to outline any of the pressing subject matters you'd like to see tackled um, in these events um, in the comment box as well. So as always, make sure you're registered to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments and events from us at HET. But thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.